MSW Media. This week, Michael Cohen walked into a courthouse and told a federal judge under oath that he committed a felony and that Donald Trump directed him to do so. That happened within minutes of a jury convicting former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort on eight felony counts. And then later this week, Trump chief financial officer Paul Weisselberg received immunity in exchange for his grand jury testimony. Does this spell the beginning of the end of the Trump presidency? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic. I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, who's a regular on this podcast. Thank you for having me. What a crazy week. I mean, for people who love courtroom drama, this was some delicious legal news, wasn't it? It literally reminded me of that last scene of The Godfather during the baptism where they're cutting between all these things happening at the <laughs> same time. I imagine these the on television and these reporters were constantly cutting between we have one courthouse where there's eight felony counts coming down against Paul Manafort, and then in another courtroom in another city, Eight counts are being pled guilty, you know, pled guilty to by by Michael Cohen. Very dramatic, very big, but no news, in my opinion, was bigger than what Cohen said in federal court. And that was really a surprise. I wrote a, a piece in Politico magazine uh, this week about how Trump was winning until Tuesday. He isn't winning anymore. Um, and what I meant by that was, of course, the PR uh, piece of this, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about that later. But what I thought was interesting is if you look carefully— at the charging documents okay. for Michael Cohen. I'll I've let act- you look at those because I'm not going to go through all that. That's a lot of information. <laughs> well, you know, I was <laughs> fair enough, and I don't think I don't think most people have. But I, as a as a former pro- uh, federal prosecutor, I spent time looking through these. And what's interesting about it is that when you look at the financial crimes, my, there's nothing in here that says that Michael Cohen was doing or committing those crimes. At the direction of Donald Trump, there's nothing that says that Michael Cohen was consulting with Trump, nothing about Trump's knowledge at all. Those documents were deliberately written to obscure that, to put that question off to the side. And out of nowhere, Michael Cohen says it anyway, under oath to the judge. And one interesting question that I've been talking to a lot of reporters behind the scenes is, why did Michael Cohen decide to do that? And I think the the obvious answer is he wants to, at this point, take down Donald Trump. Well, and why would they keep it deliberately out of the documents in the first place? They they want to hold that off for something else. They're working on that investigation at the same time. Well, you're, you know, let's try to think like federal prosecutors here. I, they're not radio hosts. They're not people on television. They're not <laughs> trying to make a splash of the news. What they're trying to do is get from point A to point B without prejudicing anyone else. Okay. So they don't want to put, you know, that's why, you know, it's one question I got from people is why? Why did it say candidate when it's perfectly obvious when it says candidate one was elected president on this date? We know who he is. Why is that? Well, that's it's like that in every jo- Department of Justice uh, document, a charging document. And the idea is you don't want to name people unless you have to. You don't want to say more than you have to. So I think you had a lot of careful prosecutors in New York who were drafting this and saying, you know, what we're going to do is we don't need to say anything about what Trump knew or what he did. So let's just leave that out. So as a federal pro- former federal prosecutor, what would be your reaction when you'd, you'd been deliberate in the way you phrase that? And then the guy who's pleading guilty just throws that in there in front of the judge my first reaction would be to think about is this accurate is this true 
And if this, if Michael Cohen was saying something to the judge under oath that I thought was false, that was contradicted Ooh. by evidence, I would immediately pause the proceedings and have a sidebar conversation with Cohen and his lawyer. The fact that the prosecutors did not interrupt what Cohen said tells me that they did not have evidence that contradicted it. Oh, interesting. I hadn't even thought of that part. Yeah. So I, I think that it's very, very interesting. And, you know, the, the question now, I think, is what does that mean for this the Trump presidency going forward in this campaign of of a drumbeat of, you know, impeachment or collusion, all these things we've been hearing about, you know, for months, I talk about in that piece for months about how Trump has been talking, no collusion, witch hunt, uh, angry Democrats and so on. And it's, it's been working. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who are convinced that, that Mueller is doing something wrong. And what's really interesting here is um, these charges were not brought by Mueller. They're brought by a group of prosecutors in Manhattan. They have nothing to do with collusion. And I think what you saw this week was the Trump White House and the Trump team really struggling to come up with a counter narrative. But was their prosecution an offshoot of what Mueller had uncovered or part of his investigation? Well, he referred this over to New York, and there's been a lot of speculation as to why that is. Uh, you know, my my take on it is, you know, one thing that we did see that I thought was interesting months ago was in in the letters that were released that that Trump's team wrote. Uh, to Mueller, they talk about an agreement they had with Mueller that Mueller said he would not take on any additional lines of inquiry without notifying the Trump White House first, which is very unusual for a prosecutor. And it suggested to me that a lot of the attacks on Mueller and the integrity of the Justice Department by Trump were having an effect. He was being more conservative. And I think that from my perspective, that was part of what he was doing here by rolling this off to New York. Okay, you think my investigation's too sprawling, you think my budget's too high, you think I'm doing too much, fine. We'll let these people in New York investigate this piece of it. And it's much harder to attack the prosecutors there because they are part of a U.S. attorney's office that's been there, you know, 100 years or more, you know, more over 100 mm-hmm. years. It's an institution. You can't not have federal prosecutors in New York. It's hard, harder to imagine Trump saying we're going to shut that down. But he still manages to get that message out there that he's the victim in all of this, that he is the victim of a witch hunt. And he seems to still be able to throw that in there, that there's no, no collusion, even though this has nothing to do with it in the Cohen situation. Yeah, I think it's harder. It falls. The, the no collusion thing I think falls flat. I mean, the latest thing is it's no crime. Uh, I don't understand. Oh, yes. I did see that where they're like, it's not a crime to do that. It's kind of weird, right? So the idea that Michael Cohen would go into federal court and would plead guilty to something that is not a crime, that a federal judge would sit there and accept a guilty plea to something that's not a crime. Justice Department prosecutors would would issue these charging documents to get a plea to something that's not a crime. And Cohen's lawyers, who are actually really competent, unlike uh, President, you know, many of President Trump's lawyers, you know, the guy Cohen's top lawyer is a former chief in the Southern District of New York and in the, in the Manhattan courthouse there, the Manhattan uh, U.S. Attorney's Office there. He didn't object to any of that. Everyone agreed that in that courtroom all the lawyers in that courtroom agreed that that was a crime but somehow some lawyer there's a radio host or tv host who said it's not a crime uh, for some reason well i think it was even didn't even giuliani come out and say similar things that i think he did and i you know what i would suggest that that tells you that you should not get your legal advice from rudy giuliani well and president trump said if you're going to get a lawyer don't get michael cohen even though he was one of only three of the clients michael cohen had for years well exactly right uh, definitely <laughs> a bad a bad group of lawyers that have been uh, representing uh, trump so 
So here, you know, here we have we have a bit of jujitsu that I think was offered by 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 uh, Cohen's statement, where literally, um, you know, it it kind of counterstepped or sidestepped the Trump's narratives, and now Trump is facing war on two fronts, so to speak. He's got now a, 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 a you know this group of prosecutors in New York who are who are in, uh, advancing a federal investigation at the same time Mueller is acting. Um, and I think, you know, the interesting thing now going forward is, you know, where, where, where does that federal investigation in New York go? And what part of what we saw later this week, of course, was Weitzelberg. And it's funny, we're not even talking about Manafort, right? Right. We're, yeah, what happened to Manafort? There's, it seemed like something happened on Tuesday as well. He got completely defeated. It was interesting. There was a, a reporting by CNN that the Trump team was gearing up to attack Mueller if there was a hung jury there. It didn't happen. You had eight convicted. Of Manafort, there's no way to spin that as a victory, or and there's another trial coming up. Right, Manafort is totally screwed. I mean, he's waiting for a pardon, and you saw that the Trump team floated a pardon out there. All right, yeah, yeah, and then comes the whole chain of like, well, then what if what if we do this and you pardon this person? It gets a little bit mind numbing to think that they would even try something like that. Well, you know, there's a lot of been a lot of talk. You're going to see people saying that that's obstruction of justice or or witness tampering or so on and so forth. It's not something that Mueller is going to. And I say charge. I'm going to put that in quotes, uh, air quotes, uh, because he's generally going to be presenting things to Congress. But I don't even expect him to cite that. But what I think it does show in the ordinary sense of the word it is, uh, Trump trying to throw a wrench at things and, and say to, to Manafort, don't flip. Don't be a rat. I mean, we literally had the president <laughs> of the United States talking like a criminal. Right. I mean, criminals, in my experience, talk about rats and get mad at cooperators and flipping. I will tell you, I had a former federal prosecutor reach out to me this morning and say, you know, you need to get out there that this is hurt. It can hurt us because we rely on. Oh, we rely on. This is a current federal prosecutor said we rely on cooperators we rely on those for our cases and that is so true i mean all a cooperator is is somebody who comes forward to prosecutors and tells the truth about the, the criminals that they're working with at what level of of information would somebody who is going to uh you know make a plea deal uh how like what extent like what what qualifies them to be somebody that is valuable to a prosecutor the prosecutor has to um, believe that what they're saying is the truth. They uh-huh. have to generally be able to corroborate that because they're going to get under attack. Uh, when 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 corrupt when cooperators are put on the stand in a trial, the judge instructs the jury to take their testimony with caution and great care. So and and we saw actually in the Gates or excuse me the Gates testimony in the Manafort trial. You know Gates had flipped and the jury it, one of the jurors went on Fox News and said we totally discounted everything Gates said. Oh, we put really? it off to the side and only considered the other evidence you know jurors are skeptical so you have to believe what they're saying is true you generally have to corroborate that testimony and they have to be moving the ball forward for you as a prosecutor and that's why what happened with Weisselberg is interesting so you know after all of this the the you know I, I wrote this long piece in Politico magazine I'm like okay this is we've had this new stage of the investigation now we can relax for the week the the C the CFO the chief financial officer of the Trump organization 
received immunity. And I will tell you that that means something because prosecutors don't just give immunity out for free. You have to be getting something valuable in exchange. How much information does a prosecutor try to get before they even begin to talk about immunity? So before you give immunity to someone, if you're a prosecutor, you talk to their attorney and the attorney gives you what's called a proffer. It's essentially a summary of what the person's going to say or that what the what the attorney expects the witness to say. And that gives the prosecutor a preview because prosecutors do not give immunity blind. In other words, they don't say, look, whatever you say, um, God bless you. You're 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 not going to have we're not going to hold that against you because you could say all sorts of lies under oath, et cetera. They want to know exactly what it is you're going to say before they are giving you immunity, typically. And that has to be of, of value to them. Could it also be that the prosecutors already have evidence against that cooperator or that uh, individual? That very much could be. I mean, at the either one of that, the request for immunity is going to come up in one of two ways. The way it'll typically come up is the defense, you know, the the prosecution is going to go to the witness and say, we we have this evidence to use your example. We have this evidence that you may have committed a crime. We're willing to give you immunity if you okay. testify. The other way could be the 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 prosecutors approach this witness's lawyer and say, we'd like to we'd like to have Mr. Weisberg uh, testify. And the lawyer says, well, I'm concerned about his liability for X and Y. And then there's a conversation between the witness's lawyer and the government about whether there's really liability there. And if there if the government's view is he doesn't really have any liability, they won't give immunity. They have to be convinced that there's actually some criminal liability there. And what is the difference in the weight of the way you see it in the Mueller investigation and now the New York attorney general? Well, and that's that's a great a great um, uh, segue because that was interesting reporting by the New York Times this week. The New York Attorney General's opened an investigation into these same transactions. So Weisselberg is was given immunity to talk about these transactions with Michael Cohen, and um, you know there's some interesting stuff in here. I'm going to take a look at this. I'm looking now at the Michael Cohen charging document, okay? And it says that Michael Cohen, in seeking reimbursement for these election-related expenses, which is the hush money, he presented executives of the company, the Trump Organization, with a copy of a bank statement from the Essential Consultants Bank account, which is that that bank account the Stormy Daniels money came from, which reflected the $130,000 payment Cohen had made uh, to, I believe that's Keith Davidson's bank account, and he, he adds in handwriting an additional $50,000, which represents a claim payment for tech services. And he summed that up to 180000 Then the company, quote, grossed up, they put that in quotes, for tax purposes, Cohen's reimbursement of 180000 to 360000 Then added a bonus of 60000 so that Cohen will be paid $420,000 in monthly installments of $35,000 over the course of 12, 12 months. And this is in the charging documents that were filed in federal court by federal prosecutors. Then it says that an executive one, an executive of the company, requested that this this payment be made pursuant to a retainer agreement for services rendered, which is a falsehood. And executive one, according to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and NBC News, is Mr. Weisselberg, the CFO. So he makes this false statement and he sends the invoice to another executive of the company to have it. This pay it says please pay from the trust. The trust is the trust that that Mr. Trump's companies, the president's companies, have been put into. And there's only two trustees, Mr. Weisselberg and Donald Trump Jr. And so it really appears to me that Executive Two is Donald Trump Jr. They're having this conversation about payment for these 
um, for these uh, services rendered, which aren't really services rendered, a false statement. And what I think is interesting is Weisselberg has been asked about this under oath, about his, presumably about this conversation with Donald Trump Jr., about this payment. And so we literally have him as a witness about Donald Trump Jr. We don't know what Donald Trump Jr.'s liability is yet, but you not only have the Manhattan federal prosecutors investigating what Donald Trump Jr. said and did here, but also now, as you point out, the New York Attorney General. Is claiming ignorance enough of a defense in a situation like this when it comes to these tra- this transaction? In fact, that is usually what the defense is. There's all these expenses. There's all this stuff out there. I have no idea. Um, you know, that's a typical defense. I will say based solely on this, there's not enough. I will tell you, tell you this, a former prosecutor, there's not enough to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. The real question, which the Wall Street Journal was not able to confirm is, did the president know about these payments? What did he know? What's his potential criminal liability? Did he want these false statements to be made in financial records? If those false statements are transmitted to a bank in exchange for a loan, that's bank fraud, which is a federal crime. The New York Attorney General um, is looking at what I'll call lesser federal or lesser state offenses that are still felonies, but just for having false financial records, which is a crime in the state of New York. And presumably, I would think that the person who knows whether or not President Trump knew what the money was for would be the person who has immunity now. Mr. Weisselberg. And potentially it'll be interesting, you know, Donald Trump Jr. You know, one thing that we talked about jujitsu a little earlier here in the podcast. One interesting question is if the New York attorney general starts investigating Donald Trump Jr., we know they're investigating this matter. Um, they, th- th- Donald Trump cannot pardon someone for, uh, for state offenses. The president can only pardon for federal offenses. And I don't think Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, is going to be pardoning any Trump family anytime soon. So you could have Donald Trump Jr. facing unpardonable, effectively, uh, charges. This is this uh, another sidestep of the narrative, something outside of the president's control that Trump can't really shut down the New York AG. You know, it's going to be harder for him to shut down what the federal prosecutors are doing in Manhattan. Suddenly he's facing war on multiple fronts. Amazing. I can think of really no one better to talk about this with than my friend Natasha Bertrand. Natasha is a reporter for The Atlantic. She is a contributor for NBC News and MSNBC. And she wrote a piece this week, you should check it out in The Atlantic, about the New York Attorney General investigation and how that really is the most important um, uh, front against Trump and, and all the implications of what that means about him. And Natasha and I have been following this investigation from the beginning, and she is one of the most important voices out there. Welcome to the show, Natasha. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. So we 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 all read with interest your piece this week about the New York Attorney General's investigation. Why do you think that is so important? Yeah, so I think that's something that's gone it's gone unexamined uh, is the Trump Foundation, and that of course is what the Attorney General is looking at now. Um, I think that we've we've looked a lot at the Trump Organization and the potential vulnerabilities there, especially with Cohen um, and his plea deal, but. The common denominator between both the Trump Organization and the Trump Foundation, of course, is Alan Weisselberg, who we know was granted immunity to testify in the Cohen investigation. Um, but I don't think that that's going to be the last that we hear from him. He was given immunity to testify, you know, uh, use immunity, essentially, to testify before a grand jury um, with regard to the Cohen ongoing Cohen investigation in the Southern District of New York. But, of course, 
both the president, um, Michael Cohen, the president's children face significant legal vulnerability, um, potentially with regard to this uh, investigation that's being carried out by the New York Attorney General. And of course, that also would not be subject to presidential pardons, right? So if any kind of crimes arose out of that investigation, then the president would not be able to simply um, pardon, for example, his children um, if they were convicted of some some kind of wrongdoing. So I think that that's, that's definitely somewhere that we'll see uh, Weitzelberg's name pop up again. And of course, we also have the Manhattan District Attorney's Office looking at the Trump organization. So there's a lot of legal headaches right now for the president. Well, for sure. And, you know, one thing I was talking about earlier in the podcast is how the Cohen Uh, charging documents talk a lot about the Trump organization and other people in the Trump organization being in, you know, having knowledge of this and interacting with this. At the very least, a lot of these people are going to be witnesses and and certainly under the crosshairs of the United States Attorney's Office in Manhattan, the federal prosecutors there. You know, what, what I think is interesting is this is we're starting to see elements of the legal battle against against Trump that are really not under his control. You're talking about the New York AG, whether it's him or uh, or excuse me, whether it's uh, her, the New York attorney general, or it's the uh, federal prosecutors in New York, it's going to be hard for him to shut that down. Right, absolutely. And I think that the Southern uh, District of New York prosecutors really pose a more immediate threat to the president than even the special counsel. I wouldn't necessarily say they pose a bigger threat, but it does seem um, like they are bearing down on the president in a way that Mueller hasn't yet. And of course, the president has said in the past that his finances would be a red line. So I do wonder whether or not he will try to take some kind of action to stymie this investigation. But, But really, it is spiraling out of his control. And people on Capitol Hill, people who have traditionally been allies of the president, have said that this last week is a turning point. For the first time, they really seem to be acknowledging that this presents real legal peril for the president um, because, of course, three of the people that have been closest to him throughout his the last couple decades, really, David Pecker, Allen Weisselberg, and Michael Cohen – are now cooperating with investigators. And that could be extremely problematic. People close to the president have acknowledged that. Even Steve Bannon said that this is going to potentially cost him um, and cost the party uh, at the midterm elections. So this is uh, definitely something that has the president brooding. He was not on his A-game during his rally last week, and people noticed. And so I think that, you know, this is an area where he realizes that loyalty has always been a one-way street for him. And the people that he, you know, treated poorly throughout his time at the Trump Organization when he was essentially the head of what people like to compare to this mafia family. Um, He expected loyalty, but he did not always return that favor. And of course, now we see that Michael Cohen, who has been treated badly by the president um, pretty much from the time he started working for him, uh, has really decided to just go all in and turn against the president and tell Mueller um, and prosecutors in Manhattan everything he knows. That's for sure. He he really at this point, he it seems to me that Cohen is eager, uh, as I think the word I would use to do whatever he can to cooperate. And I, I agree with you, Natasha, in terms of the, what we saw from Trump this week. You know, up until uh, this week, a lot we saw, I think, a very well honed disinformation campaign coming from the Trump team where witch hunt, no collusion, angry Democrats, there's always a new uh, angle. Um, This week it was very hard. They had a lot of trouble responding. I mean, you saw on Fox and Friends, uh, Trump was saying, well, I I didn't see Cohen that much. 
Uh, I know Maggie Haberman said publicly that Trump would see Cohen every single day. Uh, you know, this is a guy who's <laughs> recording his conversations at times with, with the president. It, it strikes me as it's, it's harder. It's a harder narrative because it's not about collusion. It's not about Mueller. There's no dossier. None of that stuff matters. It's all the financial crimes out of Manhattan, something totally different. Totally. And I think that it's it's actually a lot easier for the public to understand. I mean, the Russia investigation has been kind of in the weeds. There have been a lot of incremental developments when it comes to this campaign person talking to this Russian, um, you know, the various connections between Trump's uh, organization and, you know, Russian banks, for example. It's, it's all very it's been all very complicated and difficult for the public to keep up with, um, you know. But when it comes to financial crimes, potentially, and things like tax fraud and, you know, really, you know, trying to defraud the government, not paying your taxes, filling out fraudulent bank bank loan applications, things like that, Um, and campaign finance violations, it's really not that hard to understand. And I think that this is uh, potentially very problematic, of course, for the president, because this is not about the Russian collusion um, investigation, and they've been trying to use that as kind of their saving grace. But this is arguably <laughs> even worse because it's it's actually something that the public can can grasp onto and say, oh well, you know this, you know there was money laundering going on, there was tax fraud. You know these are these are things that are comprehensible. Whereas there's kind of been a lack of imagination, I think, that's plagued both the public and and even reporters, members of the press, um, regarding the Russia investigation. It's, it's, it's almost the whole thing has almost been too difficult to comprehend. But Trump's um, real estate business and the financial um, potential financial wrongdoing that he committed over the past, you know, 40, 50 years of his career, that is very easy to believe and very easy to understand. So I think that's where he faces a lot of problems if Mueller and, and prosecutors in New York decide to, to continue down that path. Well, I will tell you, as as someone who in prosecuted and and tried many financial crimes jurors do not like people who get rich off the uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't off of like cheating or fraud or anything if you're if you're getting uh you know if you're if you're paying not if you're not paying your taxes and they are they're mad if you're cheating even if it's banks i mean no one really likes a lot of the jurors don't like big banks but they also don't like people who are cheating them out of money because they don't they don't get to cheat and they're not the ones feathering their nest and so you know i i think you were there from the Manafort trial at least I saw a picture of you running uh out of the courthouse uh, that that uh so I know you were there you know what I saw really was a jury and I thought it was amazing to listen to that juror watch that juror on Fox News who was a Trump supporter very much uh wanted to believe Manafort thought he was such a smart man and really liked him and ultimately she voted to convict on all uh, of the counts because she was persuaded by the evidence. And I think, you know, on these issues, no matter where you're at, if, if somebody cheated uh, and is not, is, is either cheating other people out of their money or cheating the public, uh, that's something people don't like. Absolutely. And, and, and this juror, Paula Duncan, she's, fascinating to me because she, I think, represents exactly what you and I were just discussing, which is, you know, the Russia investigation may be difficult, especially for Trump supporters to understand or grasp or, or accept, you know, the idea that his that his campaign was in a conspiracy with the Russians to win the election. That may just seem, even for people who are critical of the president, that may seem like difficult to believe. I mean, even though there's a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that that is true. But, but you know, going back to Paul Duncan, there is, there is a sense that she really... She 
she she said she said I did not want to go in there wanting to convict Manafort. I thought that this entire trial was the result of an illegitimate investigation to begin with. But when presented with the argument that that prosecutors gave, which is which essentially boiled down to Manafort was a liar who didn't pay his taxes. He, you all have to pay your taxes. Manafort didn't. And when he did not have money, he lied to get more money. And he lived this extravagant, lavish lifestyle that he got used to. And all of that was at the expense of, you know, taxpayer dollars. All of that was at the expense of, of you know, the United States government, which Trump supporters say, you know, America first. So faced with these contradictions, I think that the, the evidence was just overwhelming. And it was also not complicated, right? I mean, there was a lot of evidence. There were a lot of different, you know, there was a lot of talk of offshore companies and shell companies and, you know, uh, banks in Cyprus, et cetera. But ultimately, it came down to a very simple fact, which is exactly what you said, is that when you're when a jury is confronted with these facts, they really don't like people who got rich at other people's expense. Mm. Um, and I think that ultimately could be um, the president's Downfall. Yeah, well, you know, I, I often when I explain to clients now, because I'm on the other side of things, when I explain to clients about federal investigations, what I always tell them is the safest way to protect yourself from federal investigations and from federal prosecutors is never to get on their radar. Sort of like there's Russian hackers <laughs> out there. I'm sure they can hack my my computer, my phone if they really wanted to. I'm sure they could just take me down my little laptop, but they, they don't care. I'm not important enough to them. And you want to kind of stay out of the gaze. It's like the eye of Sauron in the Lord of the Rings. You want to stay out of the gaze, <laughs> hide under a rock or something. Um, and uh, and what the problem is now for for President Trump is he is under the gaze of a lot of people. Uh, you know, the Attorney General's Office in New York, uh, the Southern District of New York, uh, federal prosecutors, Mueller. And when when prosecutors start looking through things, they're not going to look through everything willy nilly. They're going to start from where they have evidence. But it's it's a potential problem if you've been engaged in, in criminal behavior. Paul Manafort and, and Donald Trump aren't the first people that have put themselves in that situation. It's actually a, a common thing. I mean, the, the fraudsters, people don't realize there's a lot of financial crime out there. There's a lot of fraud. And they're really, uh, I'll say this from my experience, there's, there's not nearly enough resources out there to catch even a fraction of the people who are committing those crimes. And often the people we, we, that we um, would catch and that I would prosecute would be these people who are these moguls who had all these things going for them, but then would just keep putting themselves out there more and more and more. I think there just tends to be amongst people who commit fraud um, or financial crimes, This they buy their own BS, mm -hmm. so to speak, and they just mm -hmm. become convinced of, you know, well, this is fine. I've always gotten away with it. And, you know, I, th this is all good and fine. And then, you know, it starts tumbling down. The uh, hubris eats them up. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly. And, and also remember that Donald Trump has really never been held accountable for anything in his entire life, right? I mean, <laughs> when he, when his when he went bankrupt, Deutsche Bank bailed him out. Um, when he committed adultery, when he had affairs, he just got married again. So, I mean, these are, he's never actually had to face any real consequences for anything he's ever done. And I think the same goes for anything shady that he might have done in his, in his real estate um, business, because, of course, real estate is not exactly the cleanest, um, you know, most upstanding profession in the world. There's a lot of kind of corruption, mm -hmm. especially in 1980s and 90s Manhattan. Um, so he's never had to deal with the reality, um, A, of this kind of attention and B, with this kind of the kind of accountability that could come with with him using or abusing his his office of the presidency um, th that he now faces. And, and that, of course, is something that's very new to him. And I think it's also why 
he's trying to operate outside of the system, and he still considers himself somewhat um, above the law. I think, yeah, there's no doubt about that. It's interesting. I, I will tell you, I prosecuted real estate um, uh, moguls myself here in Chicago, and the reaction I often got from their attorneys and witnesses was, "Well, all this is happening all the time. There's a lot of people committing fraud, and you know, I've, I've explained to them there's a lot of people speeding on the interstate. Uh, that is not a good answer when you get called over by the police officer." <laughs> and I have to know, though, what does it mean if they do find, you know, the the kinds of crimes that we are suspecting might be there, especially since Weisselberg knows about every dime that's ever gone in and, in and out of the Trump you know finances can he be indicted well okay and I'll and I'll answer this that the the justice department has guidance that's been in place for many years that they don't believe the a sitting president can be indicted and essentially the logic there there's nothing in the constitution that talks about it it's just that the logic is as if if the if the constitution talks about impeachment and goes through a lot of detail there then why do they do that if you could just indict the guy? That's essentially what that's okay. about. Um, that's the the view there. But because of that, Mueller would be presenting this to Congress. And I and I wrote about it in that political piece this week. You know, if you have 34 Republican senators who will never vote to convict, Trump can get away with a lot. But that's why what Natasha talked about in that piece is so important. You know, she pointed out not pardonable. Uh, you cannot, you know, Trump cannot pardon uh, New York State offenses. And so who knows what could come from that? Okay. Well, Natasha, what do you see coming ahead in, in what should people expect uh, in the in the week in the weeks to come? Well, of course, we're going to watch and wait and see whether or not Manafort actually decides to go through with the second trial that he's facing in Washington on charges of, you know, acting as an unregistered foreign agent of Ukraine. That trial is set to start on September 17th, but there are serious questions about whether or not he will actually go to trial because, of course, now he knows that a jury will um, is willing to convict him. Um, his blind confidence going into the first trial did not serve him well, so we'll see. The other question, of course, is whether or not the president is going to pardon Manafort. Um, As I wrote in another piece this week, there are a lot of forces acting against that. For example, Trump's legal team, which he, of course, is not known to listen to, but his legal team is really warning him against pardoning Manafort before the Mueller investigation ends, which, on the other hand, this also could be tantamount to kind of dangling a pardon and obstruction of justice and witness tampering. Mm -hmm. Um, But so that's something to look out for. If he does pardon Manafort um, against the advice of his of his attorneys, I suspect it would be after the election. I suspect that anything kind of momentous would take place after the midterms. Um, But but these attacks, these continued attacks on his attorney general, Jeff Sessions or something um, also to look out for. Again, you know, um, Lindsey Graham and other Republicans on, on Capitol Hill have intimated that, you know, they they expect that Lindsay, uh, that Jeff Sessions could be replaced and that it is the president's um, right to have an attorney general that he has confidence in. So they're kind of they seem to be laying the groundwork that there could be uh, a significant shift there. Um, and, of course, we have to keep an eye out for developments on whether or not Trump is going to sit down with Mueller um, to have that interview that he's been so reluctant to have, in which Rudy Giuliani has just been pushing back and pushing back over the last few months, even as he tells Mueller to wrap it up. Um, Mueller, of course, is, is reportedly writing a report on the president committing obstruction of justice. It's not clear whether or not he can finish that report before he sits down with the president. Um, but whether or not Trump actually decides to sit down with with him and and and, and face him um and face the questions he has about potential conspiracy with Russia and also about um you know firing Jim Comey attempting to replace Jeff Sessions last year 
um, his outburst over Sessions recusing himself from the Russia investigation. Um, that is, is also something to, to keep an eye out for. Absolutely. I, I will say I'm not holding my breath uh, for Donald Trump <laughs> sitting to answer questions, but that I that's going to be that whole uh, jousting back and forth over that interview is going to be interesting. Thank you so much Definitely. for joining us, Natasha. Thank you. I really thank appreciate you. it. Such great insight. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for joining us on our first episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast and go to our website for more information. And of course, join us next week for the next episode of the podcast. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 